I want to continue on the series uh, that we started some weeks ago on uh, the subject of righteousness. I want to start out with some scriptures that we've been looking at. Uh, Isaiah chapter 54, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Romans chapter 5. You know, there's, uh, there's not a lot of information, materials and information on the subject of righteousness that um, that really, well, that I've found helpful. Usually, when you find a subject that there's not much information on, or um, and and to me that seems strange. There should be as much or more information on the subject of righteousness as anything else out there, because everything, the foundation of our relationship with God through the new birth, is righteousness. But it seems that whenever there's a um, lack of information or a lack of a, a wealth of information on a subject in my experience that usually means that the church doesn't know too much about it and I'm well in, in cases like that it leaves us to find out on our own and so there's a lot of things that, uh, that the Bible indicates to us and that God wants us to know that we're going to have to find out on our own. It's um, for that reason, the Lord is holding me here to, to certain things, to some of the same scriptures. Again and again, several weeks in, uh, up to this point. Because there are things that we need to see. And... If we don't see them, then we'll never live up to who God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, I'm going to share some scriptures, many of them the same ones that we've looked at before. Because the impression that I have by the Holy Ghost is that these things need to sink in. And they don't sink in if you just read them once or twice. So, Isaiah 54, verse 14. It says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. The word established means to have a strong foundation and to stand strong. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. The word oppression is the word injury. For thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. The word terror is the word for destruction or ruin. So in righteousness shall you be established. Notice what God is saying in the Old Testament. Looking forward to the work that Jesus would do and accomplish here on the earth. He said it was a work that would produce righteousness. Everything about the plan of God hinges on righteousness. Everything about the new birth is righteousness. If if there is no righteousness, then there is no new creation. If there is no righteousness, there is no opportunity for us to stand before God without a sense of condemnation and guilt. So God's speaking to man to try to inform him of what is to come says that righteousness shall be our foundation. If we don't know much about righteousness, then there's no way we can live up to who Jesus has made us to be. In righteousness thou shalt be established. Notice the rest of the verse indicates that righteousness has a lot to do with authority and God's power in our lives. I will go so far as to say that in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but in my opinion... One of the reasons that the church is 
weaker than we should be and weaker than we've made to be, been made to be, is because we don't have an understanding of righteousness. And let me go even further and say that a righteousness or a redemption that doesn't do away with sin consciousness isn't worth much. Now, the righteousness that most of the church world lives according to or their ideas of what it involves is a righteousness whereby something was accounted to us by the work of Jesus. Yet we still have a consciousness of sin. John wrote to the church and said, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. Well, that confidence toward God can only come when you escape or overcome the consciousness of sin in your flesh. Now, if the blood of Jesus being shed for us did not do away with that consciousness of sin, then what is it supposed to be? Jesus said to the church, the works that I do, you shall do also, and greater works than these shall you do because of going to my Father. Well, going unto the Father was all about providing for the righteousness of mankind, wasn't it? Going to the Father means he went into the Holy of Holies, as Hebrews 9 tells us, and obtained an eternal redemption for us. Not forgiveness, redemption. Redemption is the wiping away of sin, not the covering over. And he said, because I'm going to my father, you'll be able to do the same works as I. The same works that I did here on the earth. And even greater works. Well, why isn't the church doing the greater works? Jesus said we would. It's obvious, therefore, that it's the plan of God and the will of God that we should. So why didn't the church do it? I would submit to you that at least in part in my thinking a very big part but at least in part the church does not do the works of Jesus because we have not escaped that consciousness of sin therefore we don't have confidence to stand before God or the devil I'm talking about the church world at large I hope I'm not talking about you as an individual but the church world at large doesn't have the confidence to stand before God or even the devil and utilize the name of Jesus as Jesus did himself here on the earth There's got to be a fix for that. If there's not a fix for that, then Jesus is not the Savior that we think that he is or that the Bible says that he is. If there's not a fix for that, then God's not the Heavenly Father that the Bible declares him to be. There's got to be a fix for that. Well, what is that fix? The Bible indicates to us that the fix is to understand righteousness. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression or injury. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, far from terror or ruin or destruction too, for it shall not come near thee. Verse 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, John is uh, shown... where the devil rebelled against God. It talks about the great dragon that took a third of the stars, meaning the angels, representing the angels, and they made war with God, and, and, uh, and God dealt with it. 
And it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, John says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Well, now one thing about the book of Revelation that the Bible indicates or tells us very specifically is that God showed him things that were, things that are, and things that were to come. It's not all just future prophecy or truth revealed about what's going to happen in the future. When John saw this, it had already happened. The biggest part of it had happened because he associates it with salvation. Salvation was through the blood of Jesus, not through the tribulation. He identifies the power of Christ meaning the power in the name of Jesus given to the church. So here's God saying, kind of showing John an overview of things that had happened before, where they were at that point in time, and then things that were yet to come. And he said, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation. Well, that, that has to be at the resurrection of Jesus then. That's what provided the salvation. Now has come salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus and strength, power to the church and to the believer, and the kingdom of our God. The Bible says through Jesus' sacrifice, we've been translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of, of his dear son. So that has to be through the, the resurrection of Jesus too. So he said, now is salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For, here's what happened at the time that Jesus was raised from the dead for you and me. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Please notice that the Bible is indicating to us that that is not a present tense or a present day situation. The accuser of the brethren was cast down. Now going back to Isaiah 54 verse 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in condemnation or judgment, you shall condemn. Well, if the devil is not accusing the brethren day and night before God like he used to do apparently because it indicates the power of Jesus and the resurrection that belongs to us that made us new creatures in him changed that, altered that. If the accuser of the brethren is not accusing us before God day and night, what's he doing? Righteousness altered the course of the devil's activity, but what's he doing? Well, he's still accusing. He is the accuser of the brethren. But he's not accusing us before God anymore. He accuses us to us. Therefore, if we understand that, and I don't see any other way you can interpret that. But if we understand that, we understand that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, not before God anymore, but to us. Then the tongues that rise in condemnation against us that we're supposed to condemn takes on a whole new light or maybe we should say it this way what righteousness means takes on a whole new light for us your righteousness which comes by faith your righteousness will never be any greater than your ability to condemn the accusations of the devil within your own mind did that make sense your ability to walk in righteousness, your ability to do the works of Jesus and use the power of the name of Jesus to do everything that he did on the earth, which he obviously wants us to do, hangs directly on your ability to condemn the accusations of the devil against you. 
Well, the accusation of the devil against you is what we call sin consciousness, which the, which the church preaches a lot about. I'm talking about the modern-day church. We won't hear. But the modern-day church, by and large, talks a lot about sin. And by sin, it's speaking of and referring to behavior. The modern-day church is more interested in behavior on the part of the believer and the idea of living up to some means of perfection that man with an experience of sin in his flesh will never reach. brings only the condemnation that comes from knowing that we're not perfect in flesh. Look with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. My favorite translation of this says he's a new species of being. The word creature is the word creation. He's a new creation or a new species of being, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, what things become new? Well, your body doesn't become new. Your mind doesn't become new. It's got to be talking about your spirit. Spiritually, things become new. And all things are of God, verse 18 goes on to say, who has reconciled us to himself. The word reconciled means to uh, make a mutual exchange. There was an exchange made through the work of Jesus. Jesus took on your sin And at his resurrection, we take on his righteousness, or due to his resurrection, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we accept and take on his righteousness. All things become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul says some things here and takes for granted, it seems to me, some things. And, and well, he should. I'm not complaining or, or finding fault. Well, he should take for granted because the Bible is very specific about things that happen to us at the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. It says there was an exchange. God expects us to know that things changed and became new. But sin consciousness rules and reigns over too many believers because Our bodies didn't become new. Whether they were expecting that or not or whatever the case is, the experience that our bodies have with sin and the tendency for us to succumb to sin or fall into the temptation of sin makes us more aware of what's happening in our flesh than what happened with us spiritually. And that's never been God's plan. Paul goes to great detail in his search during his Christian walk to identify what he realized, and that is the man on the inside is not the man on the outside. The man on the inside is the one that's righteous before God. The man on the inside is the one whose heart wants to do right before God, who loves God, who is in many ways captive to the desires of his flesh, to obey the desires of his flesh that his spirit does not want to to, uh, yield to. But the church focuses on, majors on, preaches on the behavior of the flesh. That's not the exchange that was made. The exchange that was made was Jesus took upon, your, took upon himself your sins and mine so that we take upon his righteousness. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Here's this mutual exchange word again. 
exchanging between Jesus and mankind for himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 21, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Verse 17, Paul says, For if, literally since, by one man's offense, talking about Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, for since by one man's offense death reigned by one, spiritual death took control of mankind, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, simple question. Did the Holy Spirit tell Paul this to tell us or not? Is Paul just saying, man, I wish this is the way it would be? Or is he telling us by the Holy Ghost, this is what happened and this is the result? Well, if it's not the word of the Holy Ghost, if it's not God speaking to us, what are we paying attention to it for? No, thank God it is the Holy Ghost speaking to us. And the Holy Ghost is saying that you as a believer, as every believer that reads these words, it is the will of God for you as a believer to reign in life. To reign in life. The Amplified says reign as kings in this life. To reign in life by one Jesus Christ. What keeps us from doing that? Sin consciousness. The sense of guilt or condemnation because of whatever yielding we've done or allowed our flesh to influence us to do. God expects you to reign over that. Now show me anywhere in the Bible where it says if we'll grow strong enough, if we'll grow spiritual enough, if we'll develop righteousness enough in our lives, then the experience of sin will never be an issue for us again. You can't find that. You can't find anything in the Bible where it says that you can grow mature enough to where you never miss it and never stumble. If that were the case, then there would be no need for us to receive redeemed bodies when Jesus returns. If we have the power and the ability to conquer sin in our flesh on our own so that behavior becomes the important issue in our lives, then why would God need to provide us redeemed bodies? So the condition of the modern day church, by and large, is that we see these promises and accept the condemnation of our own minds, which are often influenced by the devil, To keep us from doing what Jesus said we could do and from being who he said we've been made to be. If God's redemptive plan leaves us in that condition, it's not worth much. Or if that would be the case, then we'd be better off to get saved and die and go to heaven. But that's not the reason Jesus left us here on the earth. He left us here on the earth to reign. He left us here on the earth to bring the earth under our control 
to use his power in his name to conquer the works of the devil. If there is no provision made in God's plan of redemption for us to become that, then redemption is not worth much. Is this making any sense at all? Well, then what are we to do? Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is when uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, or under a cover of darkness at least. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Please notice what Nicodemus recognizes. He says, Jesus, we know that you've come from God. We know the power of God's working through you to other people because nobody can do this stuff that you do if God wasn't with them. Nicodemus, a representative of the world, a representative of the religious world specifically, identified that the power of God was the evidence that God was with Jesus. Now let's stop there for a minute before we go on in the story. If Jesus, or since Jesus left us on the earth to do the same work that he did, and the power of God in demonstration was what caused the people of Jesus' day to recognize that God was with them, then what do you think God wants to do with us if not the same thing? If the power of God on display in and through Jesus was sufficient to cause the religious leaders of, the, of his day to recognize that he was sent from God, why would God want another method or another type of evidence for the church today? You see the point, don't you? He said, we know you come from God because nobody can do the stuff that you're doing except God be with them. Wouldn't that be a great thing for the church to have said about us today? Well, we know it's the will of God. Jesus said, you do the same works I did because I go to my father. Because of the righteousness that I'm providing for you through my blood that's shed and the sacrifice that's being made, you're supposed to do the same works as me. The Bible even calls the church the body of Christ. Well, who ever heard tell of a body that didn't do what the head did? When you leave today, you're going to take your head with you, aren't you? So it's clear that Jesus wanted the the church to do the same works as he did. He said so. So Nicodemus says, we know you've come from God because of the miracles. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Two things to note here. One is he identifies the miracles as the kingdom of God. The Bible says God has already translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his dear son. That means we've come into the kingdom of God today, which means the church should be doing the same stuff as Jesus did because he identified the kingdom of God as these things that he was doing. Second point to see is knowing that Nicodemus is interested in the power. He tells him the key to the power. He said, you must be born again. Or we can say it this way. You must be made righteous. To see the kingdom of God, it depends on one and only one thing that he identified. And that is to be made righteous. You want to see the power? 
You've got to be made righteous. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, natural birth. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit, the new birth. Now, why would Jesus tell him about the new birth, about the, the, the plan process that God has provided for mankind, which is to be made righteous? When Nicodemus is talking about the power of God being on display. He's saying righteous men and righteous women have access to the same power that I'm using. I want to show you some other scriptures. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Paul writes by the Holy Ghost that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. He's talking about the new birth. Here's the the process or the principles behind the new birth. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So he's talking about being saved. He's talking about being born again. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I want you to see how the, the, the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to equate salvation with righteousness. He's saying they're one and the same. He's saying to confess Jesus as your Lord because you believe God raised him from the dead is to believe unto righteousness, to believe to become righteous. And that's accomplished by the words of your mouth which bring you into salvation. So righteousness has to be salvation. Salvation has to be righteousness. There is no righteousness without salvation. There is no salvation without righteousness. They are one and the same. That makes righteousness pretty important then, doesn't it? Now, we know that the Bible says that God made Jesus to be sin. We know that that was a process. Or we, uh, well, I don't know if we can say we know it. We assume that that had to be a process. Because you can see Jesus taking upon himself the sin of the world, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night that he was betrayed, he took his disciples out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. They fell asleep. And he prayed and had a real tough time of it. He prayed so earnestly that he sweat great drops of blood, which medical science tells us is not only extremely extremely rare, but there's nobody in the history of medical science that's ever survived after sweating blood. It creates such an impact and such a hardship on your body. You're under such stress and anguish that blood is forced out of your veins and through the pores of your flesh or your skin, nobody's ever survived that. There have been a couple of times where it's been the case where that has happened with somebody and nobody's ever survived. So the indication there to me is that Jesus is under great anguish because he knows what's coming. He knows what being made sin for us really entails, even though we didn't and his disciples certainly didn't. If they'd had any inkling of what was going on, they probably would have been able to stay asleep. Or stay awake rather than falling asleep. So Jesus begins laying down his life. It continues through the beatings that he took in Pilate's court where he shed his blood for the healing of our bodies. It continued 
through the agony of the cross. Till he finally says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. He spends three days somewhere. If he was made sin for us in our place, then that had to mean that his spiritual nature was changed. It had to mean that he died spiritually. Had to mean that. If he's going to pay the legitimate price, the awful price, for the sins of mankind, then when Jesus left this earth, when his spirit left his body and departed from this earth, where would he have gone? The place of the righteous dead? Not if he was made sin. He went to the place of the unrighteous dead. Now he couldn't be able, he wouldn't be able to go to the place of the unrighteous dead unless he was counted as unrighteous. And the Bible tells us, explains to us some things about that in Ephesians chapter one and two. It tells us Paul's praying for the church. Let me just start reading in verse. Uh, Well, I don't want to read the whole thing. Paul starts praying in verse 15. He prays that the eyes of the church's understanding would be enlightened to know certain things. One is the hope of his calling, what God's plan is for them. Secondly, the, the inheritance, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, his believers. But the third thing is, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. That's going to describe the working of his power that he's talking about which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Then chapter 2 goes on and says, And you hath he quickened. It's talking about the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And then it says at the same time he quickened you. He made you alive. And you hath he quickened. Now it equates, puts on equal terms. Jesus being raised from the dead. We think of being raised from the dead just as being just only in terms. I say we, I mean the modern day church. Thinks of being raised from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead. Just as physical resurrection. But the Bible says in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. That can't be physical resurrection. Jesus was not the first person that came back from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised one young kid, young boy from the dead by touching his coffin during his funeral. Jesus would be great to have at funerals. We don't even know who the guy was. But he touched the coffin. The guy came back to life. He delivered him back to his mother. So Jesus was not, could not have been. There were even Old Testament examples, a couple of them anyway. Old Testament examples were somebody who was resurrected or raised from physical death. So if the Bible means what it says, Jesus couldn't be the first begotten or the first born from physical death. Which leaves us with only one conclusion. 
He was the firstborn from spiritual death. But just as Paul is talking about Jesus being raised by the power of God from spiritual death to spiritual life or eternal life, it says you were too. You were made alive when Jesus was made alive. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking about spiritual death. He can't be talking about physical death there. Because the people reading the letter weren't physically dead. And had not been. So the death that he's talking about has to be spiritual death. Which means the same spiritual nature that came on mankind according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men. That same spiritual death that came upon, man, the man, uh, came upon mankind particularly Adam himself as the originator of that sin means Jesus had to suffer the same consequence. Jesus had to die spiritually. Now I know that's hard for some people to accept but the Bible says it. Jesus had to die spiritually. If he paid the price for your spiritual death and mine he had to die spiritually. He had to take upon himself our condition. And this very clearly says we were dead in trespasses and sins. That has to refer to spiritual death. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Spiritual death ruled the world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The devil in other words. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation or manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, because we were spiritually dead. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. He made us alive together with Jesus. When Jesus was made alive, so were you. Now, when the Bible says Jesus was the first begotten of the firstborn from the dead, again, it has to mean that he was the firstborn from spiritual death. So it's saying when Jesus was made alive or born again, I know we don't use that term very much when it's talking about Jesus, but that's what the Bible says. That's the way the Bible calls it. The first begotten or firstborn from spiritual death. When Jesus was born from spiritual death into spiritual life, so were you. So was I. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Folks, I want you to understand what the Bible is saying. The Bible is is saying that you've got the same new birth that Jesus does. Jesus was just as dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins. Not his own, but the trespasses and sins of mankind. As you and I were before we found him. You've got the same new birth he's got. You've got the same eternal life that came the same way. As Jesus himself. So it says that we were quickened together. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God has, has before ordained that we should walk in them. Please notice that the Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of God because the work was finished. What does that mean? That means because we have the same life, we have the same eternal life, we have the same born-again experience, we have the same breath of God. As it says about Adam when he was created, God made him, fashioned him with the, the, uh, his hands and breathed into him the breath of life. And he became a living soul. Jesus was in the same condition. There came a moment in time where Jesus, through the word of God, or we'll say it the way that Genesis says it about Adam, where Jesus had the life of God breathed back into him. The life that he had laid down came back upon him. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 says that Jesus was made alive in spirit. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says Jesus was justified or made righteous in spirit. So that new birth experience for Jesus raised him from spiritual death to spiritual life or eternal life. The life of God came back upon him, into him. Changed his nature. Made him now a new creature. New creation. By God himself. And that new birth experience enabled him to be seated at the right hand of God. And since the Bible says you have the same life, the same quickening, the same born again experience. That means you have just the same right to stand before the throne of God as Jesus has to sit next to it. That's what righteousness means. Let me say that again. When Jesus was born again, first begotten from the dead, first born from spiritual death to eternal life, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us he entered once into the Holy of Holies to provide for us an eternal redemption, once and for all, an eternal redemption. And then sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Now wouldn't it be silly for Jesus to sit down at the right hand of God the Father and start wringing his hands and saying, wow, God, I was really dead. And when the sins of mankind, all the sins of mankind were laid upon me, that means I became sin itself. So I'm not sure I ought to be sitting next to you. Wouldn't that be silly? What qualified Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God as the eternal sacrifice for mankind? The fact that he was born again. He didn't sit at the right hand of God and start saying how bad the sin problem was when he was spiritually dead. I don't think Jesus has any consciousness of sin or the condition of sin that he was made prior to being Raised from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. With the same experience spiritually. Not physically. But with the same experience spiritually. With spiritual death. As you have and I have. Or had. 
So what makes the difference between the modern-day church or the average Christian who is conscious of their own failings in the flesh and Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father? There's only one possible difference. Jesus accepted the new birth as a new creation or a new start. Man worries about what he did yesterday. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to make this statement again. A redemption that doesn't deal with the sin consciousness issue isn't worth much. But if it's possible for us to consider and understand that the redemptive work of Jesus becoming the firstborn from the dead, being made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If that did deal with the sin problem for man once and for all, then it becomes a matter of faith to accept what's already been done. Not because we deserved it, not because we've earned it, but because of what Jesus did for us. Then if that's the case, if that is possible, then it is easily, equally possible for us to accept our new position as being the same one that we had with God, that Jesus had with God when he was here on the earth, and do the same works that he did. Hebrews chapter 11. You remember, we've talked about this before. Let me recap it just briefly before we read any scripture. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He didn't do some kind of work to earn his way into good graces with God. He believed him. Therefore, faith has to be the sum total of righteousness. For by grace are you saved through faith. We know that salvation and righteousness are the same thing and they both come through faith in what Jesus did, not faith in ourselves, not as some kind of payment because we've been good before God. Not even some kind of reward because we've maintained the righteousness that Jesus provided us. But just simply because we believe God. Well, if that's the case, and it is, then that means the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 should give us some kind of indication what makes us accepted in the beloved. I didn't point it out when we were there, but in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. What that's talking about is the new birth experience, the righteousness experience. That's what we're his workmanship unto. Has nothing to do with whether we stumble and fall in our earth walk. Has nothing to do with whether we yield to the temptation of sin or not. It says we are his workmanship talking about the new birth. The new birth is his workmanship. That means God's not ashamed of you or me. Now the devil wants to make us ashamed of ourselves. But God's never ashamed of you or me. The Bible says we're accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in Jesus. That'll never change. Because that's not based on what you do or don't do. It's not based on how good you live or whether or not you make mistakes. 
It's based on one and only one thing, and that is Jesus died for you. Now, you have the ability to believe that, and we all have to some degree by accepting Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. But you've, got the, you've also got the ability to walk in that. Most of us are trying to control our behavior so that we're pleasing to God. The only thing the Bible says pleases God is faith. Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it's impossible to please him. It didn't say without faith in good works. It didn't say without faith in overcoming the temptation to sin. It says without faith. Faith in what? Faith in the new man that we've been created to be. Faith in this new creation that's the workmanship of God. So it gives us a list in Hebrews chapter 11 of people that God commended for their faith. If they're not supposed to be examples for us, what's the list about? So who does it talk about? Well, it talks about Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 tells us that after God showed Abraham the stars of the sky and said, so shall your seed be. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But chapter 16 of Genesis shows us where Abraham commits sexual sin and created a real problem for the world by having a a child, Ishmael, through Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. Well, what does the Bible tell us about that? Does the Bible tell us that God counted it righteousness, counted unto Abraham righteousness, when he believed him, but then when he committed sexual sin, that righteousness was forfeit. Then the blood of Jesus that provides the righteousness of God for mankind has to be stronger than sexual sin. Sexual sin cannot negate righteousness. What about Noah? Noah's in this list. First thing Noah did after the flood, he was faithful during the years coming up to the flood, stood alone in many respects. Accepted God's word to be true. But the first thing the Bible tells us about Noah after the flood was he got stinking drunk. So getting stinking drunk does not disqualify you from being righteous since he's in the list. David's in this list. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed to cover up his sin. Now, was righteousness accounted to David until he committed adultery? And then murder? No, neither one of those were sufficient to make him unrighteous in God's eyes concerning the promise of the Savior, or the Redeemer. So you've got sexual sin, you've got drunkenness, you've got adultery, and you've got murder. And none of those disqualified these heroes of faith from righteousness. James chapter 5 tells us about Elijah who is a man of similar passions, like passions unto ourselves. And he prayed and the heaven was shut up for three and a half years, prayed again and then it rained. And the Bible uses him as an example of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Well, if you look at the life of Elijah, he did some great things for God. But there were times where he lost it too. He goes running from Jezebel and sits up under a juniper tree and says, God, I'm the only one left. Woe is me. He had a little pity party for himself. Claimed to want to be dead. But that was the whole reason he was running because Jezebel had threatened to kill him. 
So he didn't want to be dead. So you got a guy that was, shall we say, emotionally iffy. Yielded to his feelings. That didn't disqualify him from being the example of a righteous man who prayed. So what is sufficient to separate us from the righteousness of God through the blood of Jesus? It's a real question. What can do that? Well, we see from the scripture that there is no, N-O, no sin of the flesh that can do it. If we come to understand that, I cannot help but believe that that will put us in the right place to reign in life as God wants us to. I'll say it again. You have just as much right to stand before the throne of God without a sense of condemnation or guilt or sin or any such thing. Just as much as Jesus has a right to be seated at the right hand of God. Because your life is his life. His new birth is your new birth. His righteousness is your righteousness. Folks, if we come to understand this, if we come to take hold of some of these things, I believe it will be said of us as it was said in the book of Acts, they that have come, they that have turned the world upside down have come here too. See, when you do away with this sense of condemnation, again, as John said, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. We come to the place where where we realize the condemnation of the devil against our minds has no bearing, is no hindrance whatsoever to us doing what God has planned for us to do because we've been made righteous by his life. Not our own. When we come to realize that. Then we'll be able to stand before God in the circumstances of life. And say just like Jesus says. I thank you father that you've heard me. And that you hear me always. Why? Because he was one with the father. That's what righteousness does. It makes us one with the father. Then we could say with Jesus. And Paul even came to the same place. I always do those things that please my father. Paul said that when he was having trouble with his flesh. Because he realized the trouble in his flesh was not the real him. So he came to the place where he could say, just as we can, just as Jesus did, I always do those things which please my father. That doesn't mean my flesh never stumbles and falls. It means the man on the inside always does right. He always wants to do right. He always serves God. Wouldn't the same thing be true for you and me? There is no sin in the flesh that can undo the righteousness of God. Because it's of God. Not of you. And not of me. You have the same right to stand before the throne of God as Jesus has to be seated next to it. Because you were born of the same life of God as he was. 
You were born out of spiritual death into eternal life. Just like he was. Just like he is. That's why the Bible says that we're joint heirs with Christ. Joint means equal. We're equal heirs with Christ. Because his righteousness is yours. He just beat you to it. He was the first begotten. Not sure where we are in the line. But it's the same life. Same experience. Same righteousness. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Every tongue that rises up in condemnation or in judgment, you shall condemn. When you come to the place where when the devil tries to condemn you for some wrong action or something that you did that you shouldn't have done or something you didn't do that you should have done, when you can come to the place where you laugh at it and say, that has nothing to do with me. Because the me on the inside, the real me, has been made righteous by God himself. And no stumbling, no falling, no tripping up, no yielding to any temptation of sin in the flesh in any way whatsoever can ever undo that. Then we can stand fearless before the circumstances of life, claiming the promises and the blessings of God, knowing that God hears us just as really as he heard Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made. And so we declare what the word says about us. We say that we are the righteousness of God in him. We thank you, Father, that we're accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in Christ Jesus. We're accepted as righteous because we are your workmanship. And your workmanship caused us to be born again. Your workmanship caused us to be new creatures in him. Your your workmanship caused us to be righteous. Thank you, Father. That your eyes are over the righteous. They're over us. And your ears are always open to our prayers. We thank you, Father, that we are joined together with Christ and therefore joined together with you just as Jesus was joined with you on the earth. We are one. Your life is our life. Our life is your life. And Father, we commit ourselves to keep your word, to walk by faith and to walk in love in any and every circumstance. For that is the only commandment we have, is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and to love one another. We commit ourselves to do that, Father. But even if we fall short, we thank you that we will always be, ever be, Righteous in your sight. We thank you that there is no sin in the flesh that can ever separate us from you and separate us from your love. Separate us from your hearing and answering our prayers. Separate us in any way whatsoever from this new creation work that joined us together with you. Satan, we serve notice on you. We're not afraid of you anymore. We're now finding out who we are. More and more who we are in Christ. So we condemn any accusation you bring against us. You have no access to our spirits, the real us, in any way whatsoever. 
And you'll never make us able to, you'll never make us to stumble in spirit. We may make mistakes with our flesh. But we know that no sin in the flesh can keep us from being unrighteous. Can keep us out of fellowship with God. Because we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your strength. We thank you for the power in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the ability to use the power in the name of Jesus in any and every circumstance to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil against us and to destroy the works of the devil against others. Thank you, Lord, that because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we are perfect candidates to do the same works that he did here on the earth. Thank you, Father, for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have a real sense in my heart that there's still a lot more to see about this. But the things that I'm beginning to see, just in, in the degree and the measure that I've seen them so far, it causes me to feel on the inside like my spirit's turning flips. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Thank God that we've been made righteous by that precious blood. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God because we are who He said we are. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are those that have been destined to do the works of Jesus here in the earth. Thank you, Father. That there is no condemnation to us because we're in Christ Jesus. We've been made righteous. We love you, Father. We're not looking for an out when it comes to physical fleshly sins. But we count it an honor to do what Jesus would have done here on the earth in every circumstance and in every situation. And the power to do that and to live up to that. Because our righteousness is of you. Our righteousness is of you. Our righteousness is of you. It's not of us, which means we can't mess it up. It's of you. Thank you, Lord, that that's so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Say it with me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity. Amen.